This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833-999-1877 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. Hey, welcome to Hell is an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This week, we're doing part two of Millie's story, an unaltered state of mind. Just want to remind you guys, if you guys are struggling or looking for substance abuse treatment, you could go to unitedrecoveryproject.com. If you have any questions, you can also message us on Instagram. Again, this is part two, episode 84, an unaltered state of mind. For me, when I talk about being in recovery and why I have, a, I don't want to say it's a hard time, but I've tabled my over-identification with like a recovery program or even like my mm-hmm. trainings or anything, right? Because the moment I over-identify with something, I lose, I like lose my connection when I talk about mm-hmm. being the source. Like we're not a well, we're not a cup, we're, we're a well. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to lose that connection to source. And if I over-identify with something, then I lose that. So one of the things that I've focused on is like recovery for me is not about not drinking. It's not mm-hmm. about not drugging. That's, that is, that stopped early on. Yeah. It's th- about, that's like saying like being a human is about being alive. Yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> Well, you need to be alive to experience right. being a human. But. I just want to, I mean, being present is what's important to me mm-hmm. and being present in my moment, unaltered. Now I drink caffeine mm-hmm. and all that and people could say, well, that's altered, whatever, whatever. But, but like even the most painful shitty parts, like when my bonus dad died mm-hmm. or when my mom died or, you know, the things I've been through when my daughter was diagnosed with, with intellectual disabilities or whatever has happened that like I have learned that I'd rather handle it. And, and create the joy that I want to create than mm-hmm. to anesthetize myself and numb myself out from it. Mm-hmm. Because it's almost like building strength. I feel like the hard times build strength as well as the good times do. So why would I not mm-hmm. want to experience all of it? And a part of me, like right now, it's like, you know, I'm going through like a lot of things with my business or whatever. And it's like, wow, I really took it for granted when it was going great. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I think it was just going to be smooth sailing this whole time? And it's like I need to prepare and I need to really enjoy when it's going. Because when it's going good, you almost don't even know that it's going good yeah. until it goes bad. You, that's You're laying you know? in shit until you don't know yeah. until, until you get out exactly. of it. It's the same thing. It's like you get so used to it. And like what I always tell myself is like I'm very aware of time. When I was little, like I just couldn't wait to get older. Mm-hmm. And now I'm getting older and I'm getting older and I know like. You know, I'm 31, I'm about to be 32, and then I'll be 35. And then before I know it, I'll be 40. And I'm like, such a baby. (laughs) And I'm aware of this. You know, it's like, even though I'm young, you're a baby to someone who's 75. 100%. You know, people that are in their 80s are like, you're such a baby. Yeah, you're a baby. You know, so it's like, I'm aware that no matter how bad 31 ever could be, I'll be 50 being like, fuck, I wish I could be 31, 31. having the worst time of my life. (laughs) Because it's like, you're never going to get this age again, ever again. It's never, never going to happen. Even age. Like so many people hate their age and whatever. It's like, dude, if you don't like your age now, you're really going to hate it later. It's so funny because I, I actually feel more confident now than I did when I was in my 30s. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have much more sure-footed. I'm, I'm confident in what I do and, I, and I'm happy my age. There's some physicality things I wish, and I don't want to say I wish were different, but it'd be nice. I, yeah, don't, yeah. I don't wish for anything. I wish my back didn't hurt. <laughs> right. <laughs> I wish I didn't pee when I sneeze. Um, yeah. Those are the things I'd like to not have happen. But for the most part, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm, I mean, I look great. I feel great. I don't wish to be younger. Mm-hmm. And one of the things lately I've really dealt with, and it's, I think it's the first time I've said this out loud to, well, I said to one other person, but I don't really feel like I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be in like the world. Not just like, like I'm in the wrong marriage, I'm in the wrong mm-hmm. business, I'm in the wrong, but I'm like, 
you know what? This existence isn't my home. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm a guest. I'm a traveler, and I'm I'm not from here. I'm here, but I'm not from here. Mm-hmm. And there's just been this weird like thought pattern when things are going on. We're aliens. I feel the same I, way. I'm like I'm an alien. <laughs> I don't really belong here. I'm Us. just I'm just a guest for a while. So uh-huh. don't get so comfortable. Don't start thinking that this is it. This is existence. Yeah. And that's only been recently, like the last couple. My of years. mom's always said that. My mom's been like, "This is just the intermission waiting room. <laughs> like you think this is what the fuck it's all is? <laughs> this is the waiting room, Brian. Like we're just fucking yeah. waiting here. I just realized you know? like. I'm going to leave this body in this time at some point, at yeah. some undetermined time. And it's not like I go away or, mm-hmm. or anything. I just, I won't be here in this way. And mm-hmm. and I've gotten very much like, when is that going to happen? Not like wanting it to happen, but at the same time being okay when it does. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of stuff happening right now where I'm like, mm, I don't need to be around to see the the polar caps yeah. melt. I don't need to see the puffins disappear. Mm-hmm. The, the you know like there's a part of me that's like when people are like oh my god the world's going to come to an end. I'm like yeah it is. And I you know I still am conscious of things mm-hmm. that I do so that I don't create more yeah, waste. It's not the, like this end of the world fuck everything. No, it's not the end of the world fuck everything. But it's like I don't really know that this is my this isn't really my home. So mm-hmm. if if I leave here whatever way I leave here it's fine. It's mm-hmm. the way it's supposed to be. It's a foreign thought, and it definitely, I think, freaks other people the fuck out. I think getting clean has left me with this feeling of, like, I already got way more out of life than I ever thought. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, like you could have been like, hey, Brian, you're going to die in a year. You're going to be on methadone for another year, and, you know, that's it. I would have been like, fuck, all right. And then, like, I got clean. It's all like this extra, because someone asked me like, oh, did you think when you were getting clean that you'd be this successful? I was like, dude, I didn't think I would get clean. Right. Every, every day I was like, is this still real? You know, I was <laughs> like, you know, every day for like a couple of years, yeah. I was like, no way. There's no way I'm not on drugs. And I was so content with just not being on drugs. And sometimes I forget that, but I think even with everything that I've done in life or whatever, I think there's a part of me that still has like this infinite gratitude for not being addicted to crack. Like, I just think that like there's something in me that's like, dude, you thought you never would get off crack. Yeah. For me, I think that's a, a similar in that sometimes I think of where I came from and where I'm at now, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I shouldn't even be here. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when I say I shouldn't be here, like, I should not be here. I Statistically. Lived, yeah, I grew up in a house with a sociopath that tried to murder women, mm-hmm. knew some guys from my neighborhood who actually killed two girls my same age and threw them off of a bridge. Wow. And they had, like, literally been over my friend's house, like, the weekend before. Wow. You know, like, I've had all of these interactions with... Mm-hmm things that I shouldn't be in existence. You know, like how many times did I drink and drive? How many times did I, my heart try to stop? You know, I I mean, I think about all of those things, like I shouldn't be here. And yet I'm not only am I here, but I've had opportunities to help thousands of people, not just get sober, but like live fully self-expressed lives, whatever that means to them. And and what a blessing. Like, (laughs) Yeah. If your life was a movie script, people would read it. And then be like, no, it's not realistic. It's <laughs> not real all the time. Yeah. Sometimes I ask myself, I'm like, are yeah. you just interpreting it this way or was that real? So I asked my sister, well, she does have a different interpretation. Yeah. It's funny you talk about interpretation because her interpretations of my brother are a little different because she was older. She still thinks he was a sociopath and all mm-hmm. stuff, but she has memories from when he was a baby and he wow. came home from the hospital and how sweet he was and how cute he was. Mm-hmm. And so her feelings were different when he passed. Like when he passed with me, I was like, okay, the world's a safer place. Mm-hmm. I'm sad that he passed. You know, I hate that he died alone and in prison, but I was like, it'll be okay, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's out of pain, he's out of suffering. She had more of that normal lost my sibling kind of feeling where she was like, I know that he wasn't a good person, but he was my brother. So we had the yeah. same person. And a lot of times it's like, When people have severe mental health, it's like, I'm sure there is some side of him that is like compassionate and Mm -hmm. like loves people and like loved you and has this thing being a sociopath where like he, he, like that wasn't his choice. It was like a genetic thing. And yeah, it's horrible that people are victims of it. And, you know, they cause a lot of pain in the world and kill people and all sorts of things. I don't know. I think like when you struggle with mental health, like, you know, like when I see addicts on the street doing horrible things, dude, that's what addiction is. Yeah. Like things that people have done, I've thought about a million times. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's like, I'm a good person because I only think about it. 
You know yeah. what I mean? Well, and it's so funny you say that because recently I had this thought pattern about like, well, you know, I was on a jury of a, um, a murder trial recently. Yeah, like two was, weeks. I was on a... That was crazy. <laughs> it was so crazy. I ended up being the <laughs> four person. I'm like, I, I asked someone the other day, I was like, why am I the context for murder? Like, what in the world <laughs> am I doing that murder seems I just to didn't be... go. They asked me to do jury duty. I just never went. They never <laughs> asked me about it. It's really bad, right? <laughs> I don't know if it's really bad, but I think you should probably check into that because I do think you can get in trouble. It was like a year ago i thought so too and i was like i think you have to pay a fine or something but i never got no. another thing from them i didn't think they would choose me because i told them about my brother usually that should get you off a jury duty yeah. like no no we don't want her oh, yeah. but they took me and then i ended up being the four person it was really interesting but when i was in that whole place i had a lot of empathy and compassion for the guy that, even though i yeah we found him guilty um and i believed he was guilty mm-hmm. of first degree murder i on my heart hurt you know what I mean? Like, and, and even for the, so there was a gunman and a middleman. Yeah, I feel like you and me are the only people who think like this. Because I feel the same way. It's, my heart I almost don't him. even like telling people this because people think. We empathize with the bad guy. No. We empathize with the I still murderers. can be, I can still be clear that I don't want him to come over for dinner and I still will look over my shoulder. And he deserves to be in prison. And he deserves to be in prison. Go and, away. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, but at the same time, I'm like, I have like, I just automatically am like, all right, so you know what? Like. You don't need my judgment. You don't need me to to crucify you or whatever. I mean, although I did was like literally scratching my head. I'm like, this might be the dumbest criminals I've ever met. Their mm-hmm. whole their whole plan was, was the worst. Uh-huh. Like, I'm glad that criminals don't think better than they do <laughs> because we wouldn't be able to catch them. Yeah. But literally, like, there was I had that judgment where I was like, man, if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna hire hitmen to kill your wife, like, le- at least. Get it together, son. Get it together, you know? But no text messages. None of that, none of that stuff, right? But mm-hmm. my my heart hurt for him at, and actually for the gunman too and, and, and for everyone involved. Like when they were speaking, I, I mean, I was wow. literally like listening and I was like, what is in the heart and the mind of this person that they thought that this was A, going to work and B, that it was a plan that they would have actually implemented. I mean, I, again, I think most human beings at some point in time, like I told you, I thought about running my boss over mm-hmm. with my truck one point. You know, like it's not like I haven't thought about killing people. Yeah. Of course, it was in church and all that. Kind of, but the point I'm saying to it is, is like people have dark thoughts mm-hmm. to have no inhibition to carry them out. There's something that stops them. There's something that stops us. And I say us mm-hmm. like normal people. Right, like most people will say, ah, you know what? I thought about killing my wife, but I'm not going to do it because that's the mother of my children, and it's just wrong to kill. And da 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 da. There are people out there, and who- I'm going to, and, and they consider the consequence, and they think they're going to get caught. Yeah. Sometimes I think that the only difference is that people who do these things really believe that they're not going to get caught. Hundred percent. You know, it's 100%. just like they they believe that. No, something would happen. They think they're smarter than everybody. They think they're smarter than everybody, and that no one's going to get. I feel like if I went to go do a murder, like a cop would just happen to be driving. <laughs> like, I'm just like, I would definitely like, yeah. I would just be that one guy who like, yeah. you know, yeah. the phone rang at the wrong time and or the what, right at time. the right time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but it's like, I just, th- and I don't think it was always like that. I think when I was using and I was younger percent, if there was like a thousand chances that it would definitely get me in trouble, but there was that 1% mm-hmm. that you might not. You were going for I it. was always like, one person, that's, yeah. so there's a chance, you know, like I always thought that, like, well, if one person smarter. got away with it. Yeah, I thought like I, I was could smarter. Get, I could talk my way out of it. And I did a lot. And I just thought like, for, I just had such an ego that it's like, you ever gamble and just be like, I'm deaf, like this machine's talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not oh, a <laughs> I don't gamble a lot, but sometimes I'll be like, you know, I've been doing really well and. I deserve it. And I think like tonight, I'm just going to get, I'm just going to win. The last time I went to the I don't gam- gamble a lot, but that's I, what I think when I do The last time gamble. I was gambling was like my first year of recovery and I was still working oh, as wow. a bartender. Uh-huh. And I went with this guy, everyone from my work was going to uh-huh. go. And this one guy couldn't drive. He wasn't allowed to drive. So I drove him. He was a, he was like a regular at the bar we were working uh-huh. at. I was like, I don't really want to go. I think I'm going to go home. He goes, no, 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 I'll, I'll pay for your gambling. You just go gamble. Cause he wanted, he was like big into like blackjack and he mm-hmm. would go to the big table. Right. And so I went and of course at 20 bucks, it was gone in no time. Cause I'm not a gambler. And so I come back and I'm like, I'm ready to go. Like, you know, can you just get a cab? And he's like, no, no. And he just gave me another 20. And I was like, Hmm, if I put this 20 in the slot machine, I'm going to lose it. But if I just wait 15 minutes and I go back, he'll give me another 20. I walked out with more money than nice. he did because I just, I owe that man amends. I should see him now that I've said it out loud. I was wrong I for taking know. your money. You 
But the thing is, is like that was more exciting to me than losing. Like to me, I can't help but think I'm going to lose that Mm -hmm. money. And I like start thinking like that's a pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. That's a shirt. That's like my brain. Even when I was drinking, my brain was like, "Mm, that's six drinks. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. I still counted in drugs for two years. That's an eight ball. (laughs) Yeah. Someone would get a tattoo. I'd be like, you spent 40 pills on a tattoo. (laughs) You know. (laughs) I was just always counting in drugs. I would even know. um, It's been like almost 20 years now. It's 19 years in April. And I'm like, I was telling the story about when I got sober, I I was out with some friends and we'd been like on a bender for days. Uh And I drank like all night. We did. I was like, we started off doing like cocaine and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And then this girl's like, hey, can you carry my mushrooms in your purse? I'm like, can I have some? She's like, no, I don't have enough. I'm like, bitch, I'm eating the mushrooms. So I ate her mushrooms. (laughs) And then I did some LSD. And then I did some more cocaine and more alcohol. And then this friend of mine's like, hey, do you want some mescaline? I'm like, yeah, I'll take some mescaline. And we're in a nightclub, right? Because everyone does mescaline at a nightclub Uh because that's the spiritual awakening there. Mm -hmm. And we snorted it off the toilet seat. We like broke the capsule and snorted the powder out Uh of it in the toilet seat. It was fantastic. And so (laughs) I thought I was dying. Like I literally, I was watching gay porn with my drug dealer Mm -hmm. and his boyfriend, his boyfriend's boyfriend in this like big kingside bed in a Sunday Uh morning. Like, you know, it's like I'm watching like gay porn with three men. (laughs) I'm like, like zero interest in you. Which one doesn't belong? Uh You know, yeah, no interest in me. And then, like, <laughs> my drug dealer tells me like, he's going to kill himself. I mean, it was just, like, this terrible thing. And I'm, like, I, I just bought, like, a gram of Coke from him. And uh-huh. I'm, like, my heart, I, like, do a bump and my heart just starts pounding. And I'd just done this mescaline, like, an hour earlier. So it's probably kicking in. Mm-hmm. And I swear I'm dying. I think I'm having a heart attack, right? Mm-hmm. And then I, like, have this outer body experience where I can see myself above the bed okay. looking down. And I'm, like, what the fuck? You're a mother of three. You're the little wow. little league homeroom mom kind wow. of. You got to get your kids to school tomorrow. Like I'm married to a cop. What the fuck is You're wrong? You're married with? to a yes. cop. Yes, it was all like this whole scene was bad. Wow. Right. I really I thought I was dying. I thought mm-hmm. I was having a heart attack. So I like had this will to live. Probably the first time I remember really been like I really want to live. Like I had this like all at once, like um, I was like completely sober, if that makes, not like sober, yeah, like sober yeah, mind, but like- I have a sober thought. I had a sober thought and I like poured myself in my car and drove home. And the way home, I prayed the whole way home, like, God, if you just get me home, I promise I will do better. I promise to mm-hmm. do better. Well, of course I drank the next day. I was working Monday night, I was working at a bar, I got mm-hmm. really drunk, really stupid. And because I'm not going to do drugs now. Yeah, just drink. I'm just going to drink like a normal person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was terrible. I was the worst drunk I can remember having in like 10 years mm-hmm. because I had no other drugs to, I mean, my drug- to balance was, it out. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, and so once I got through that night, again, another driving with one eye open, please God, get me home. What had perpetuated all that was I had started drinking drunk with my kids in the car and I started to like stop showing up from the, from the picking them up from the school bus and wow. shit like that was starting to happen. And that was my mom. And so I did not want to be like her. I was mm-hmm. like, no, I want to be better than her. Well, what I didn't know is that enemy of my best mom that I could be for my kids was better than my mom, which was, mm-hmm. like I said, she was a narcissist. Yeah. Like Real low standard. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> like the bar, I'd already beat the bar, but I wasn't. I, I still wasn't doing great. And, mm-hmm. and then just the self-loathing. And then I became like super suicidal. Like like I was like every day, like I'm, when my kids go to school, I'm going to pull my car in the garage and just keep it running. Mm-hmm. Like I had all of these like, fa- it became, my addiction became how I was going to kill myself. Mm-hmm. And my brother had died. He had died like a year or two earlier. Wow, so he died when you were using. Yeah, yeah. He actually died. I wasn't using and I ended up relapsing. How did he die in jail? He committed suicide. So wow. he hung himself, yeah. He actually convinced, he's just so charismatic, he convinced a trustee to let him try to kill himself so that he could be switched to the medical unit. And then he broke his neck and died. So you don't think that he actually was trying to kill himself? That he I just- think it was a win-win. He, he created, was like, hey, if I kill myself, whatever. And if yeah. I don't die, then they'll fucking switch me. Yep. That was his way. Like I, everything was a win-win. He was he was playing the odds. If 99% of the time it works, that 1% might be a fucked up yeah, situation. But whatever. But I'm going to try it. Like he still had that mindset. But I, there's a part of me that was just like, I can't do that to my mom. Even as fucked up as she was, like yeah. I cannot let my mom have another kid commit suicide. So I like opened my mouth to a friend of mine who had like five years of recovery and she was like, oh, you're really fucked up right now. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we worked in the bar together. And the guy that uh, we worked with. And she had, was in recovery. Yeah. The guy we worked with, our boss, had 25 years of recovery. And his wife was a counselor in a treatment center. Wow. Where was this? It was in Missouri. Wow. Yeah. It was back then when PHP wow. was still like 
hospitalization was yeah, actually yeah. in a hospital. You checked yourself in, uh-huh. you got a thing. So I did like 21 days there. And I mean, I wish I could say like, oh, I got better. But no, I was a shit show for a couple of years. Like my yeah. mental health was, I mean, I went in with post-traumatic stress disorder and mm-hmm. they like, you know, that didn't go away right away. It's still, I mean, I still think, like I said, it's still occasionally rears its ugly head because it's not like you get, you heal for, I mean, I think it's possible to heal. Yeah. But I did, I had a lot, I ended up leaving my husband who was a police officer because he, you know, he had a hard time accepting things I did when I was drinking. Mm -hmm. And so years into recovery, he was still mad at me for things I did like three and four years later. Yeah, it doesn't go away. You know. It's so hard for people. It's hard. And, And I think there was a sense of like power he had that with me not drinking, he didn't have anymore. Well, yeah, that's the thing is like addicts attract codependence. And a lot of them like being the savior all the time, mm-hmm. which is probably why he's a police officer, mm-hmm. right? You know this. Yeah, listen, I, I lived it. I totally yeah. get it. It's so true. So it's like when he doesn't have anything to save, now you're coming at him with shit. Yeah. He's like, well, what the fuck is this? Yeah, you it know? was such a reversal. And yeah. I feel for him, he's a good man. Yeah. And he probably, did, he, he definitely deserved better than what I treated him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I left and I, it was not easy, right? Because I was an undercover person, meaning like I had done so much better than my family that a lot of people had a hard time understanding that I was having alcohol and drug problems because some of them drank more than I did, but they mm-hmm. didn't know like my combination was like, oh, I drink four or five nights a week. Yeah. When I get too drunk, I take some Coke. If you I can't sleep, I take a volume. When I wake up, I take a Darvis set. And mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I might snort the neighbor kids <laughs> Adderall off of a car seat. You know what I mean? Like, like, like everyone's like, oh, she's so normal. I'm like, I was completely always on something, but it wow. was such... I could function at such a level that uh-huh. it, that most people didn't realize what was happening. Yeah. That's harder to diagnose than the guy living under the bridge. 100%. You know, whenever I see like someone who has like this like pseudo put together shit, I'm like, you know, this might be hard to hear, but you're worse than the fucking guy under the bridge right now. The guy who did my treatment and it was DePaul Hospital. They don't do treatment. Mm-hmm. There was a Catholic hospital. And I think his name was Henry. I just remember he was like a six foot four black man. He was mm-hmm. in his 60s. And every day. He was a counselor? He was he was like the group facilitator, right? Okay. And there was like seven or eight of us in group every time. And it was the same eight people because we were on the, I was on a dual unit. So I spent mm-hmm. half my day on detox, half my day, or not detox. I didn't need detox. I was able to make it three or four days without drinking mm-hmm. and drugging. So they I didn't, I didn't do detox. So I was in this partial hospitalization and there was like, you know, all these other people with me. I was always dressed nice. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like I still, yeah, yeah. I came in with a nice clothes and nails done, hair done, right? He used to say to me every morning, he'd look around the room, he'd point at me and be like, when did you decide you were nothing but a junkie? And I was like, who the fuck are you talking to? Mm-hmm. Like, do you see, like half these people smell like booze. Mm-hmm. I am not, like, I just remember being like, who the fuck is he talking to? But I think he knew I needed to hear that every day to bring me down to like, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the outside looks like. It doesn't matter that I have a yeah. new house. This ain't the Ritz Carlton, <laughs> bitch. <laughs> It doesn't matter that I have two new cars in the driveway yeah. and that I do, you know, volunteer work at my kid's school. I still get drunk and drive with him. And, you know, like I'd fight a fucking bear. Yeah. But then I get drunk and drive with him. It just makes zero sense. Mm-hmm. In that experience, you know, I, I call it the accidental awakening because I did not intend to get sober or wake up in any way, shape or form. I, I had been praying to a candle in my bathroom up to that because that was like the, wow. the God of my childhood, you know. Just to remove whatever was like happening in me out mm-hmm. because I just could not continue to live this way. You know, I remember that guy, the same guy, Henry, one time he said, I, they you know, brought in priest back then to the, like, the priest came and taught you mm-hmm. meditation. Yeah. God's, I mean, it was, it was like real old school treatment. Yeah. The priest was in talking about God and I was like, fuck God, you know, not, not out loud, of course, in my bed. Yeah, and I remember them saying, if you wonder or mad at God or wonder why, how you got, if you prayed, how do you think you got here? Mm-hmm. And just because it's not in the package you think it's supposed to be, doesn't mean it's not true. And I had been praying for God to remove like my, my insanity, and then I end up in treatment, mm-hmm. right? But I thought that God had like forsaken me. But the truth is, I don't know what my concept of God is today compared to. I know less about God now than I did then. At the time, I realized I was like my prayers actually were answered. Treatment mm-hmm. was the answer. Recovery was the answer. I just had to choose it. And so. Mm-hmm. Pretty much I, that day I chose. And I and like I said, I wish it was like perfect and I didn't do everything wrong that you're supposed to do. Like as soon as I got divorced, I started serial dating and recovery. Mm-hmm. Ugh, it's nothing worse than sitting in an AA meeting or NA meeting <laughs> looking like around the room. Ex. And I'm like, 
looking at both ends of the table, like I went on dates with both of those schmojos. Mm-hmm. That's the worst feeling. But I, I had to go through what I went through. And today, I mean, like I said, I, th- I feel like I've had opportunity to support other people in transforming their lives. And wow, I mean, I, I shouldn't, based on where I came from, mm-hmm. that shouldn't be happening. But it goes back to like, it's never, you can never go back and change the beginning of your story, but it's never too late to change the ending. For sure. When did you start really transforming like spiritually and mentally? Mm, probably about three. Like what was like uh, like the p- pivotal points for you? So I started doing a silent meditation about probably three or four years into recovery, maybe mm-hmm. five. I went to a silent retreat. Wow. And it was by monks and Father Keating. I don't know. Oh, really? Yeah, centering prayer. And a lot of people in recovery in Missouri do when? that. About five years into recovery, I started doing it. That was very transformative because it left me alone with me. Mm-hmm. And then I got through like- how, how many days of silence? Three days. Not a word. Not a word. No, I broke the rules, of course. My, <laughs> you broke the rules of the silent retreat. Oh, fuck, <laughs> You're yeah. getting other people to talk. Oh, You're yeah. like, hey, let's go to the bathroom and talk. Bro, we were like, let's go on a walk. And we walked off. Like, <laughs> and talked. And talk, like, let's go walk and talk about all these fuckers. Um, that just goes to show you, just like in every other aspect of your life, you don't have to do it 100% to get results. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine if you did it for 100%? No. Yeah. Um, so that was the starting point. And then and I was doing those prayers for a while. And then I think... Like that was like one of the pivotal points because I, when my mom died, mm-hmm. you know, I had a lot of stuff, right, coming up and I, I felt like I was having a nervous breakdown. And I remember one day, I, you know, I've been doing this prayer group once a week and and I woke up one morning about six weeks after she died and I'd been having nightmares, like but daytime nightmares, you know, where your brain hijacks you and takes you into a nightmare and you can't control it. I used to get those when I first got clean all the time. That was the scariest thing I've ever experienced. Like I wanted to turn it off and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a lot about my kids. And then one Saturday morning, you know, I was heavy in my practice thinking I needed medication, right? Get it like this close to getting medication. And then one morning I woke up and I like had this memory of when I was a little girl, my grandmother had spanked me for something I didn't do. And my mm-hmm. mom didn't believe me that I didn't do it. And I literally started crying like a five-year-old girl. Wow. And I cried so much that my, like, everyone's like, my husband's like, do we need to take you to the hospital? Like, we need to get you on meds. There's something, mm-hmm. you're broken. And I was like, no, let's go to the meeting. And I shared about it in the meeting. And afterwards, the lady came up to me and she said, listen, I know I'm not telling you you don't need meds, but it sounds like you could be having a spiritual awakening and, and a spiritual experience instead of a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, but you should still see your therapist. And that moment, like a light bulb went off and I was like, spiritual awakenings? And psychotic breaks mm-hmm. look the same. They can look very similar. Mm-hmm. I was about 10 years in sobriety when that happened. Wow. And, I, and I just felt this lift off of me. And I, mm-hmm. and I realized like, like we were talking about the trainings, I had, tr- I had experienced something from my childhood that was so small compared mm-hmm. to everything else that happened, but hurt me to so deep to my core that I carried it with me for so long. And the moment I released it, I had this new confidence about me. I had this new like zest for life, this will to live, all of those things. And then when I got into the transformational world, that was the second epiphany. I started really starting unpacking, which is what the what the silent retreat does. Mm-hmm. It's like it unpacks all the files that you have yeah. and you begin to process things that you shove down. And then when I got here to Florida and I started unpacking things about my brother and my childhood, I was introduced to the trainings through my sponsor, actually. Mm-hmm. She's like, hey, you want to do these trainings? And what if you could have the life of your dream? You know, that all the stuff that yeah. you say. And then I got in there and I was like, this is a place I can, again, unpack mm-hmm. all of that stuff that is underneath the surface that I'm not aware of anymore. Like people walk around all day like, I don't have stuff. And everyone has stuff. <laughs> you know, everybody, everybody has, stuff. has something. and You just keep scratching and it keeps yeah. coming to the surface over and yeah, over again. Everybody has stuff. Everybody needs therapy. I think everybody could use the 12 steps, honestly. Yeah, 1,000%. Could you imagine that everybody just went around and made amends for everything yeah, they ever did? Begin to look people in the eye again? I just think that therapy is just such an easier way to get into <laughs> it. But yeah, yes. everyone should work the 12 steps, in my opinion. it's. I've read a lot of self-help books. I've gone to like so many conventions or whatever. Until today, like nothing really holds a candle to the 12-step program. Yeah, it's really crazy how like a childhood memory can alter how you behave and how you have relationships with people and not think that it has anything to do with it. And then like, you know, you have a therapy session and you start bringing it up. It's like the floodgates open. Yeah. And you cry like a five-year-old, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's and, so, and again, it's so clearing. But it's, it's like, good. It's good. It's, it's like, like you rain. should. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, fuck, I haven't cried in a long time. What's wrong with me? You know? 
when we did the training, like there was this one part where like I cried so hard. It felt so good because like I hadn't cried about that mm -hmm. in so long. I just like wasn't thinking about it. And even like I wouldn't bring it up with my therapist because it was just like too much to even talk about with him. Till today, I was like, that was something like needed to happen. Like mm -hmm. I just felt so good after that. Being the trainer or the facilitator mm -hmm. of it, you see people come in on Wednesday mm -hmm. and they look one way. And then by Friday morning, you're like, who are these people? Mm -hmm. Saturday morning, who are these people? Mm -hmm. They don't even look like like well, years. Well, we haven't slept too. <laughs> so it's like we haven't slept. We've been doing like some crazy projects all night. Like we're in trouble. You can't just sleep. Stop it. I don't know. Oh, you know what it was? It was the no caffeine. Oh, yeah. That stuff will mess you up. Oh, I was dead. I was like, this, the second we could have caffeine, I was like. You, you like realized you're collapsing it too because that's like. I was collapsing. No, it's later on you don't get to have caffeine. Yeah, that was part two. Yeah. No, not part two. Was it? Yeah. Part three? Yeah, it's way into the third third level that you you have that I experience. That's I all think I, it's great that's though. All it, I it becomes such a blur. Such a yeah. blur. I mean, I don't know that I could have done a part two if they said no caffeine. Oh my god, <laughs> it was crazy. But we do a lot of things that are so like I did another training where they would like pick you up and mm -hmm. like you would fly, whatever that entails. You can't imagine how something so little and small and childish. Mm -hmm with like music playing and everyone laughing around you can really be worth all the money in the world. Like the coolest experience I've ever had until today. Like I always think about like that feeling that we had. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the beauty of the facilitator facilitating it is, is you get a taste of that experience every time you do it, mm -hmm. which is makes it somewhat addictive. Yeah. So like, I know, like, I, I think I told you recently, like I've like had a hard time, like just being comfortable at part of my comfortability. Yeah, because it's so addicting seeing all the transformations yeah. and seeing ice, so much. Yeah. And you're seeing people have crazy breakthroughs every day. And then I go into the real world yeah, and I'm working at a job and I'm Hello, like, how are you? <laughs> and then HR is calling people, calling me and being like, you know, <laughs> you probably shouldn't pause people when they're yeah. talking. <laughs> Yeah, it is addicting. The and even recovery. Even recovery can be like that in conventions. Yeah, conventions know, are great. Going to like 12-step conventions and you see all like this love and positivity and then you go into like the real world and people are like, hey, you're fucking late for work, you know? <laughs> the key is that for me has been not to lose what I've picked up Yeah. when I go back into the quote-unquote real world. And what I mean by that is like, Keeping my integrity, keeping my, like, mm -hmm. listen, if people don't like me because I'm outspoken, mm -hmm. then that's okay. Mm -hmm. And I get that, like, I got to table that or dance with that so I don't hurt people's feelings or, mm -hmm. and I don't say hurt people's feelings because people's feelings are not my, not my fault, like, mm -hmm. or my responsibility. I don't have, I don't control other people's reactions, but I do want to always have people feel loved and that they were cared for. And so that's the part that I, you know, that I get to own as myself mm -hmm. and be in integrity with myself. But that doesn't mean that everybody's going to like me. And I think the cool thing about the trainings too was that we get a mission statement mm -hmm. of like what we want the world to be like. And we get to act in a way that creates more of that and encourages and enrolls people to to be similar. And I'm not always like that. No. You know what I mean? I'm like, sometimes I'm just like, fuck this and fuck you and you know whatever but a lot of times i am yeah i think a lot of times i can get to that point sometimes doing these trainings and being in recovery you get so deep with people that i don't want to be deep with anybody it's like yep a part of me gets really closed and reserved and like i meet people and i'm like hey how are you da, da, da. and i'm not telling i don't just want to tell them all about my life and everything because i've done it with so many people like I met someone the other day and they're like, oh, like you're really reserved and shy. And I'm like, dude, I tell my story all the time. Yeah. <laughs> like this, I was talking to someone, she was just asking me like, you think God's real? And how do you feel about recovery? And like all these questions. And I'm just like, this is the last thing I want to talk about. <laughs> because it's like, you know, when you work at a treatment center yep. and you do trainings or, you know, you have sponsees and sponsors. So I'm like, dude, I just want to fucking chill. Yeah, can we just eat some Cheetos? Yeah. Hang out, watch some too. Can we not get so fucking deep all the time? It's like... I, I, sometimes when I come home and my... Or family, it's like, 
Let's just fucking gossip and talk shit about When my family people. wants to talk to me, I'm like, please stop talking to me about anything important. Can, <laughs> yeah. can we just watch, like, Friends? Like, yeah. what's what's wrong with just sitting here and watching Friends? Mm-hmm. Like, I can't have any more deep conversations. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes I just want to chill. I watch my little anime. I watch, <laughs> I've been watching Naruto a lot lately. Sometimes I don't want to talk. Yeah, I mean, I think that's when you talk for a living, like, yeah. talking outside of the living, it's mm-hmm. like, it, I'm assuming it's like... Anyone who does anything for a living, they don't want to come home and do it. And do it, exactly. They want to have that downtime and and be, like, away from people, mm-hmm. which is, you know, like I said, it makes it easy in some ways. I, I wonder what it's like to be in a relationship with us, though, because if, you know, like, my, people in my life want to share something with me and I'm like, ugh, I've been talking all day. <laughs> I just want to go to bed. Can we just have some Cheetos, yeah. watch some TV, you know? Yeah. That, was, that was my snack for COVID yeah. was Cheetos. Cheetos. 25 pounds later. I think mine was like <laughs> chocolate-covered pretzels. Oh, Chocolate-covered pretzels and ice cream. Yeah. I got really in shape during COVID, though, because I knew it was going to go one way or the yeah. other. I was like, I need to like either reel this in or it's going to go crazy. What do you think is like a determining factor between people who stay clean and people who go back out? I always think it goes back to the big why. People who stay clean somewhere in their life have some sort of hope Mm -hmm. for the future. They have a a future that is compelling. People who don't stay clean cannot find within themselves a compelling future. There's nothing to look forward to. There's no hope. And I know I bag hope in the training and I say, you know, hope in one hand, shit in the other, see which (laughs) one fills up. But it's a different thing. It's not saying that hope... It's not like I hope something good is going to happen. It's like I see possibility. So even though I know you were like, oh, I'm just trying to stay clean for the first year or two, there's somewhere in there on an unconscious or a conscious level that you saw a possibility for yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's what held you in because there's nothing on the outside of you that's going to keep you clean and sober. It's always an inside job. For Mm -hmm. me, mine was I want to be a great mom for my children. It was the number one thing. Like that's my big why. I want to be a great mom. And then at some point it's shifted to be like – I have a purpose. Yes, yeah, like I'm worthy too. Yeah, like I matter. Like yeah. I'm enough. I don't need yeah. to be a great mom to be enough in the world. And and I started just kind of seeing in the possibilities of helping others. I think that was that's mm-hmm. the other thing is a service mindset. When you start getting out of your own yeah. way and you stop thinking of yourself first and always, not from a like, oh, I gotta put everyone in front of me, but like a like, oh, I want to be a contributor to mm-hmm. the world instead of a taker. That's and it's what like it I have a duty. In life, studies show that like when people stop working, they like die. You yep. know, it's like statistically proven when people don't really have anything to do, they just are more likely to die and Without don't a have a will. To, yeah, yeah, compelling something to wake up for. I feel obligated to continue to help other addicts because the people that helped me were not paid. Mm-hmm. The people that helped me were not like overly successful. And some of them were, and they still were there mm-hmm. and they still showed up and they still held the door open. And it's like, I feel compelled to keep going to meetings, even if like God came down and was like, hey, you know what, Brian, you've done such a great job. We're going to let you fucking smoke crack on the weekends. (laughs) I'd be like, (laughs) I would be like, well, you know, God, that's really nice of you. But uh, I still got to go to these meetings because like I kind of in debt to these guys. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And also, like, not everyone feels that way. Like, like it's hard not to get resentful towards people who just like kind of stop being a part of. Well, I will tell you the last oh, probably three or four years, I haven't been a regular attendance of meetings. Mm-hmm. And I and one of the reasons I, I stopped because I felt an inauthenticity within me. Mm-hmm. I do have done some Buddhist meetings and, and I mm-hmm. stay connected and, and be in service in other ways. I think it came down to, for me, was just some some things like in the languaging that I struggled with. Mm-hmm. and I But I still love it and I still want for everyone to have it. It just felt super dishonest mm-hmm. because I... What I wanted to say and what I was saying didn't match up. Yeah. So one of the things I, I had to do is I had to create a recovery program for myself. So mm-hmm. I had, it, it, you know, it was just, it's like going to church or yeah. creating a spirituality program for yourself. Mm-hmm. So I, I quit going, but I like, you know, I still put my name out there for people who are in early recovery or family members of people in mm-hmm. early recovery who need support, which led me into this like crazy... <laughs> 
I, I ended up befriending some families, and then I found myself like stalking addicts down here in, in Florida, <laughs> where I would like show up after they overdosed, and I would take the name and number of the person picking them up to take them to the next detox mm-hmm. they went to, and then I'd like make sure I knew where they were at at all times, and even marchman act some of them, and mm-hmm. threaten people that I was going to turn them into yeah, task yeah. force if they didn't release this kid who had really fire insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, like I became like that that kind of. of course. Cr- mm-hmm. And then I was like, I'm getting a little bit crazy. Like this yeah. isn't okay. Like I I'm I'm like letting this take up a lot of space. I've thought about doing like we'll go undercover and we'll wear cameras <laughs> and we'll fucking put these people in jail. Yeah. Oh yeah. Listen, I was like, uh, but the one kid. So funny that one kid I really did this with, and I you know I kind of fell in love with his mom. Mm-hmm. You know, like she was amazing, and I and I just felt my heart you know, felt for her and, and what she was going through and, and this this experience and he was just a good kid and, and he was just in a bad situation and I, I literally would show up every time he mm-hmm. overdosed, she'd call me and I'd show up at the hospital, you know, and, you know, like, send him Ubers, like mm-hmm. he would take me for a ride because I'd like, hey, I'm mm-hmm. going to take the Uber to take you to the airport. He'd go to the airport, get drugs and leave, yeah. you know what I mean? He was, we played the game, but he's home now. Cool. And he's been back with his mom for two years and I wow. saw their Mother's Day picture and I oh, was like, cool. this. you know, like, so like he gets some good feelings out of it. I realize that's probably not a sane way to act. Mm-hmm. Of course, like I said, I got my old girlfriends from like back in the day. We started mm-hmm. working together 20 something years ago in the recovery field. And um, they were like, that's not crazy. That's good case management. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, mm, there's a line. Like, yeah, there's like a boundary. There's some lines I crossed, but I'm not guilty or shameful about it. But you know what? Like 40 years ago, 30 years ago, that's what they were doing in 12-step programs. Yeah, not like pulling people out of pulling drug- people out of crack houses, yeah. letting them sleep at your house. Yeah. You know, oh my God. detoxing people at your house. <laughs> my favorite sponsee story. I, mm-hmm. For a while, I was the pipe piper of anyone with a schizoaffective disorder. Like everyone who had schizophrenia, anyone who, they always asked me to sponsor them. Wow. It was the craziest thing. It was going on for a while. Like I literally like had like five sponsees and all of them Not had, advertising. No, I don't even know what was happening. Like, <laughs> and I don't have, I had post-mac stress disorder and I worked, I worked in the field. So maybe they just felt I was a certain type, right? But this one, uh-huh. I sponsored. If I had schizophrenia, I'd ask you. <laughs> Maybe there's no there's a, this is my feedback, mm-hmm. but um this one she was doing really well for a couple of years. So I gave like she started walking my dog occasionally, and mm-hmm. then years of walking my dog, I finally gave her a key, and I'm like, hey, walk the dog. What do you feel? Well, she ended up taking her like night meds in the morning, and we got all off the chain mm-hmm. one day, and she calls me all off the chain, and I like curb check her. I'm like, listen. I was talking about her mom. I'm like, if it wasn't for your mom, you'd still be sitting in RFC, which is like a like a long-term recovery facility. She mm-hmm. was in that one for a year and her mom got the courts to let her go wow. and like got her back on her feet and she was doing great. And then she had like this this problem happened, right? I come home and my dog was gone. What? I, yes. So I start calling my kids and the nanny that lived with me. She was at home Did with her parents. Your dog she stole my dog. I call her and I'm like, hey, you don't know where my dog is. She doesn't answer. She calls me back in this cryptic message. She's like, I have your dog. Shut up. <laughs> She's under lock and key. Uh, what? And I'm like, what the fuck is happening? She has my dog. So fast forward in the morning, I wait. At this mm-hmm. time, I'm engaged to my husband, who I'm now married to. And so he takes me over there because he's like, you can't go over there by yourself. Do mm-hmm. not go over and get that dog. That dog, I'm like, but what if she kills my dog? She's like, what if she kills you? Like, mm-hmm. You're a mom of three. You you have a girl that lives with you who's like going to college. You take care of a lot of people. You cannot put yourself in that. And he's like, in fact, I'm going to come over and stay there because I'm worried about you. Next morning, we go get the dog. She ends up in the hospital. For this woman's six weeks or so, mm-hmm. gets herself right. Fast forward one year later, we're reading in the big book. You know, they may steal from you. They may burn your mattress. She leans over. She goes, they may steal your dog. (laughs) But you got the dog back. I got the dog back. She was back in her right mind. She's telling me a year later, they'll steal your dog. And we just crack up laughing. It was so great. Oh, my God. It took a while, though, because we have kept her therapist kept saying to her, like, you stole her dog. I didn't steal her (laughs) dog. She lets me babysit. She said, well, if you were babysitting someone's kid and you showed up at school and picked them up from school, they would be kidnapping. You kidnapped that woman's dog. (laughs) <laughs> and he still sponsored her. Yeah, my sponsor said I could fire her, but I was like, no, nah, I don't think I should. Oh, what a I, sweetheart. That's no, not oh sweet. God. Listen, it was just my, it was my pure ego. It was yeah. pure ego, but. I can handle her. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like a horse that's like unbreakable. <laughs> yeah. But she's still sober to this day. There you I go. I like, she's probably got 15 years of sobriety. Wow. And she's, you know, she's been in and out of the hospital. So like, we're not all the same. I've we're never n- had a sponsee steal anything <laughs> from me. Especially not a living animal. I've had sponsees say that they're going to fight me and they don't care that I lift weights <laughs> and they're going to shoot me. Well, I've never had a sponsor threaten to shoot me. So. I have. It's all right. 
the thing that was hard for me was when, you know, like I was in this recovery world, Mm -hmm. you know, before like fentanyl came around. So I didn't really have a lot of experiences for my first few years of Mm -hmm. clients and or sponsees dying. Yeah. And then I had that that year, you know what I mean? I think it was like 2014, 2015, and it was like Mm -hmm. rapid fire. More people died in those years than people experienced in five lifetimes. I, my first 10 years, I was like, I didn't experience but like five deaths. And then my last, mm-hmm. that like like that year, I think I experienced like 20 in the same year. And I just, yeah. between clients and sponsees, I was like, I just can't, mm-hmm. I can't do this anymore. I went to therapy and that was like one of the biggest things mm-hmm. is that so many people have died that I don't even have time to process it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll forget that they've died because it's been so rapid that I'll be like, oh my God, I forgot that person's not even like, yeah. like they died, right? Yeah, it's talking about, you know, when you talk about changing your story, changing, and when I changed my story too was, and that's why I started like helping people uh, who were in hospitals and like, mm-hmm. I, there's like a call, like when like a mom from out of state will call this mother's group mm-hmm. and this mother's group might call me and I'll go and I'll spend time with people at the hospital. That's how I got like involved in that. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's not exactly 12 step because some we know that some of them are dying. Yeah, We know that some of them are dying because they might have diseases that, have, that they're not going to make it, mm-hmm. but the moms can't get here fast enough. Wow. So, you know, what the whole preface preface it for me is, what what I take from it is for me to, for them to leave this earth knowing that they were loved. Like, mm-hmm. that's the whole thing. Like, all of those people that died, don't doubt that I love them. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all I need to do. I can't save them. I can't fix them. It's not up yeah. to me. No that's, intervention. No intervention. Yeah. It's just me holding your hand and saying, I love you. You wow. are loved. How many times have you done this? For the dying, one died, and then there's been a few that have either lost radar on, mm-hmm. and then then there are two that made it out and are mm-hmm. home and still sober. So wow. I don't know how many total it is. Okay. Yeah, but this is a mother's group that you're a part of? Uh, not anymore. Not no. even what you were. I told you they wouldn't use Robert's Rules of Order. Oh, I have yeah, a completed project. Like, Fuck this. <laughs> yeah, like I can't be with Robert. You're yeah. not going to use Rules of Disorder to speak. I just can't. No, but um, of course. no, their mission was different than mine. Yeah. Um, and they, they started getting into like changing legislation for fentanyl and, and, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm sorry, for opiates. And it's not a context I'm interested in. But I would, if they called me to do Yeah, I'm not interested in that at all. People send me like, look at this pharmaceutical company's going to jail and look at this and look at that. I was like, I spent zero time. Yeah. I dealt drugs. I'm not going to (laughs) pass. Yeah. And it's like, if someone's on drugs and needs help, like, dude, I'm your guy. I can help that person. Like, I can point them in that direction. But like the legislation and like the fucking politics and these people should go to jail and whatever. I'm like, like this guy who just sold Mac Miller drugs got like 18 years in prison. I don't know the whole story. I'm sure he was just some typical drug addict selling drugs, yep. probably doing the same yeah. drugs that he's selling. He probably sold a million of those pills to like other people. And not to say that that's like great, but like if it wasn't Mac Miller, nothing would have happened to yeah. him. And it's like, I have a lot of compassion to the kid selling the drugs. Yeah. Because I'm like, dude, he was just selling like- He's covered when, his own habit. When you're doing drugs, you're selling yeah. drugs too. I highly doubt it's like some kingpin- cartel member making hundreds of metric tons of fentanyl. No. Like that guy needs to go to jail. Yeah, yeah. Like the person who brought it in from Mexico or yeah. Canada needs to go to jail. The to person jail. who manufactured it. I'm, I'm with you. Like uh, the small nickel and dime drug dealers, you can remove them. They're going to come back in. The war on drugs is lost. And so it's let's like that quit. kid needs help just as much as Matt Absolutely. Miller. That's, that's the way I feel about it too. Like yeah. I'm not for penalizing drug dealers. Petty drug dealing. It's yeah, crazy. People ask me all the time when it comes to things like, well, what if it was your kid? So someone said that like about the death penalty. Well, what if it was your kid? I'm like, this is why I don't want the death penalty because that's against my moral values. Mm-hmm. And if I, if I were to be okay because it's my kid, then the conflicts within me, the yeah. same thing with like the drug dealers. Like if my one of my children died of a drug overdose, if I wanted to persecute the drug dealer, then that would be against my moral values. Mm-hmm. And in my low spots, I might want to act yeah. in vengeance. Yeah, when it's you, you might actually do but that. But I don't think that makes it right. Just yeah. because anger is there doesn't make it right or yeah. personal experience. Like what if you got a gun and went yeah. on and killed him? Yeah, you I would just, go to jail. You know? I just feel like we're the context for drug addiction. And until we change context, mm-hmm. it's no matter laws are going to change. Laws are not going to make drug use less prevalent mm-hmm. and it's not going to make it less dangerous. It just makes it harder. It makes it more taxing, but mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily change anything. I think until we... I think drug addicts getting clean, them educating other people that have gone yes. through addiction is probably the best antidote to the drug problem. 
and having more resources and long-term treatment. I think yeah. long-term treatment long-term treatment's the key. is like the key yeah. 1000%. It's just not long enough for people that have severe, severe, because if you have drug addiction, that's fine. But after years of drug addiction, it's really mental health at that it's point. It's really mental health. If you've been using for, yeah. and, and the thing about it is like for me, like 21 days arrested the drug and alcohol problem. Mm-hmm. But you heard me say like the post-traumatic stress disorder, the, the... And it's like people like us are like, it's almost a miracle that we even like got clean with like little resources. We... <laughs> I mean, I was working at a bar at night. Yeah. I, would leave, I would leave PHP and go work yeah. at a bar at night. I was oh, 17 with like a basic text in high school. Like the fact that I like made it through this little rat race of recovery. <laughs> yeah. And I was in South Florida where there was so much oh, recovery. Oh my gosh, South Florida. So it... if I was in another state, probably never would have got clean. Can I just tell you though, I love when I go home back to Missouri to go to meetings mm-hmm. there, I, cool. I I prefer meetings there. Oh, I, cool. I like I'll call my girls and be like, I want to go to a meeting. You want to go? Cool. And they're like, You don't even go to meetings that often anymore. I'm like, I know, but when I'm home, you want to go? I'm home. I want to go. It's just comfort. You know, yeah. it goes back to comfort. Here, it's like it's so foreign times, and and there's no offense he, to Floridian here, recovery. Yeah, it, for like a young kid getting clean, they might do really well here. Yes, because there's so much camaraderie and community. You so almost, much community. You almost might forget to do the program. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're hanging around yeah, the fringes. You're just like just oh, but you know, hanging like, around. I've seen people hang around for a few years. Yeah, Listen, they get you either it. do the program, yeah. the program's going to do you. For sure. People don't hang around for indefinitely and not mm-hmm. work, do the work. It's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I don't worry about it. Like, And I, hanging around here is better than like wherever you came from. You know? For right, so. right. I don't, I don't have a big problem with that at all. And people get all worked mm-hmm. up about it. The thing that I struggled with was, you know, it's like being raised in a foreign land and then coming to somewhere new mm-hmm. and then having people tell you like, you know, you have, and I learn from everyone. Mm-hmm. Like I, my goal is to learn from everyone. It is really difficult for someone to tell you that you broke a tradition by announcing yourself as a person experiencing yeah. recovery when you got like, you know, you've been sober for a dozen years and they've got like a year sober. But 100%. then I was like, you know what? They need me to say I'm an alcoholic so they can identify. It's not mm-hmm. about me. It's about them identifying with me, not me identifying with them. There are rules and th- cultural th- norms. And to them, you're like threatening their belief. Absolutely. They're not sure about their belief yeah, system. Like, so when I go, I'm always like, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, and, I'm and whatever, whatever their tradition says, yeah, exactly. that's what I am when I'm there. And, you know, all the know-it-alls start coming out, you know? Yeah. So it's like, like I was like that when I first got, I was like reading the I book. And, yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> The longer I stay clean, like the more I just like to watch. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I do raise my hand and participate. But when I first got clean, all the old timers in the meetings wouldn't really do much. And I'd be like, these are the people with all the recovery. You guys got to, you know, like help everybody. <laughs> right. And they were just like, no, Dude, you, I'm here just getting a meeting in. You know why? Like, I, it's not my responsibility I, to police everybody. I think the newcomers and the people with less time do better at policing people. For than sure. Them. Because once you, like, I don't identify, and, and it's not that I can't remember what it was like, but it was mm-hmm. so long ago. There were there are drugs and alcohol out mm-hmm. that didn't even fucking exist when I got sober. Like, there's Me this too, Kratom. Well, Kratom and, and Kava, and then kava. there's this, like, some, some like, cheesecake vodka. I'm like, Whoa. what the hell is this stuff? Like, I got clean before for a loco. I, so did I. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the, the point is that, like, I, you know, there's all these things that exist that were not there when yeah. I got sober. The feeling, I can same. identify mm-hmm. with the feelings. I can identify with that experience of, like, there's a hole, a void that cannot be filled with anything. And the more I try to fill it, the bigger mm-hmm. it gets. That I can identify with. But when you start talking to me about things as where someone with maybe five years can identify very well with someone who's new and someone with 10 years can identify with someone with five years and Mm -hmm. someone with 20 years. And then there's some of us who've been around for a long time that occasionally need a newcomer. To bring us back. And I was having this really bad time in a meeting and this guy comes up and he goes, I'm like, you know, my son came out as gay on Facebook. Mm-hmm. My mom died. My daughter had a seizure last week. And I'm like, you know, emoting all this mm-hmm. stuff in a meeting. He comes up to me after he goes, goes have you tried praying? Wow. It's like. No. Sh- yeah. <laughs> and my sponsor's wow. like, well, have you? Yeah. I was like. No. She goes, well, you might try it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and I was just like cracking up because I'm like, I needed him to say that to mm-hmm. me. 30 days sober, lucky to be like, yeah. happy to be alive, getting ready to go to prison. His wife yeah. left, wow. you know, and he's like talking about how prayer is saving his life. And mm-hmm. I'm like dying on the vine. And I'm like, okay, I just need to pray. <laughs> like, I just got to get my shit together and pray. I remember when I was going to meetings, this uh, guy, he had a bunch of years clean and he didn't really say much. And he was cool. though. It was like this older biker guy. He came up to me and he's like, hey, kid, you're just getting 
and clean? And I was like, yeah. And he said, get ready to see some cool ass shit. And I was like, okay. Like that was his whole thing. Was It wasn't like you need to do this, you need to do yeah. that. It was like, wow, you're getting clean? This shit's going to blow your fucking yeah. mind. Put your seatbelt on, yeah, dude. Yeah, put you're your seatbelt on. Yeah. This shit's going to blow your fucking mind. And it has, hasn't it? Yeah. My mind is blown and it's like that was, time. And it's like that was so much better than somebody like trying to protect me from making mistakes or yeah. like whatever. Yeah. It was just like, dude, you're going to fuck it all up. Yep. Just don't you're gonna use. Be, you're going to be sitting in a yeah. meeting one day and you're going to have had sex with people on both yeah, ends, both ends. Both ends yeah, of the table and be like, damn it, I hate myself right yeah. now. I'm going to all girl mm -hmm. meetings from here on out. <laughs> like, you're 1, do that percent, stuff. Like, that's every, the human yeah, condition. And then someone's going to fuck someone you don't want to fuck. And yeah. someone's yeah. going to owe you money. Oh my gosh, <laughs> the owing money. Yeah. People borrowing money from you. And it's like, oh. that happens everywhere. At everywhere. work, at church, yeah. at school, like anywhere you go, like those issues happen. Because it's people, it's right? People. It's, it's not, people. it's not the program. It's not the program. It's the people in the program. Yeah. And that can happen with anything. Any, anything. It, church, training. Anything can get culty. Anything. Anything. Yeah. And, and to me, like... Work. Work. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Work is the worst cult you can be in. <laughs> it's a cult. It's right? a cult. Yeah, you have to have the same language. I wrote one. <laughs> you know what creates a cult, right? Of course. What, like, oh, what creates a cult? Yeah, it's a joke. Fun? I don't know. A narcissist and five borderlines. A narcissist and five borderlines? There you go. That's <laughs> yeah. it. That's a little psychology mm -hmm. joke. When you ever meet real cult leaders? You're like, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. There's That's always like four or five borderlines following yeah. some narcissist around. I was trying to explain someone what a borderline was because <laughs> there was this girl that we know and I'm like, well, she's definitely borderline. And my friend was like, what's borderline? I'm like, I don't know, but she is. <laughs> Can you explain it? So ironically, my mom and my sister, I worked for a doctor, a physician for a while, mm -hmm. Dr. David Holmes. He's a big addictionologist, retired, maybe not mm -hmm. even alive anymore. Wow. Very, very interesting man. But he had treated my sister at one point in time, and she was defined as the one of the worst borderlines he ever worked with. Your um, sister? I have two sisters. One is like like my mom and the other one's an attorney. It doesn't really matter. Both are, yeah. you know, there's a recovery program for, mm -hmm. for borderline. And attorneys. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the one's attorney is very altruistic too. Oh, cool. She's like a super saint human. But the sister, so one of the things that there's different kinds of borderlines are not all the same. Mm -hmm. My mom was a histrionic. So she had like hypersexuality. She, fear of abandonment. She believed her thoughts as being true. So she was that kind where she like over-exaggerated. So and it's also paranoia, right? Somewhat paranoia, yeah. She also had a hoarding. She hoarded things. Like, she'd have, like, 30 vacuums. It was mm -hmm. crazy, this stuff. I mean, 30, 30 pairs of tweezers. She had six vacuums. You know, like, wow. when I cleaned out her house when she was on hospice, it was crazy. My sister is a little bit of a different kind. She kind of borders even on some personality. Her, her personality is almost, almost sociopathic, although she's, like, very charismatic. Mm -hmm. She's very likable. But she's compulsive, like she compulsively lies. She compulsively, like she's, she just cannot, the truth evades her. And it's not even that she's lying to you or me. She's like lying to herself about mm -hmm. things. And she sees things through a funny filter. So those are like layman's terms. Someone with a much smarter, like there, there's the DSM-5 yeah. that you could do. Well, that, is that's there like, also that they almost can't tell what's real and what's like happening to like a TV show? Yes. And they almost like do the most dramatic thing possible? Yeah. So like my, Just to see like what would happen? My mom used to watch soap operas. In fact, I'm named yeah. after one, Dark Shadows. Wow. Millicent, it was a character. Millicent. Yeah, and Josette is my sister, also from Dark Shadows. Well, yeah, because I always wonder, like, wow, you have such an yeah, interesting name. Yeah, my mom name. liked to watch soap operas, and and she would fixate on these soap operas so mm -hmm. much so that she, if that was happening on the soap opera, she would imagine that it's happening in her life. So if if a man was mm -hmm. cheating on his wife in the soap opera, then the man she's married to is cheating. Wow. If she thought you were doing something, it was true, mm -hmm. regardless of the information that would, like, she also had other issues, but, like, that was one of the big things. Her fear of abandonment was so big, mm -hmm. and her unlovable story that she would create these almost, like, alter states of reality. Mm -hmm. It was very interesting. So, imagine growing up in that. I mean, obviously, my brother was a product of that, but then me, like, I think I always questioned, like, am I crazy? Because she ran the house, but mm -hmm. yet, I think she crazy but people are letting her raise children and run a household like so you're like skeptical of like is she really crazy or this is just how adults are behind yes, closed doors i just thought all adults behind closed doors were crazy like that pretty much when i go over people's houses i'm like why isn't your mom like screaming at you and mm -hmm. 
insisting that, you know, like your stepdad is romantically attracted to you. Like, isn't that normal? Like, why, yeah. why isn't that happening? You know, mm-hmm. but, I, you know, it just took me a long time to figure it out. But but a lot of times borderlines, the chief thing to look at is they overreact to situations and their mm-hmm. fear of abandonment. And I think a lot of people wow. have it. Like, I, I know when I went to treatment, I definitely yeah. had. Ex- well, everyone has like a little bit of narcissism yeah. and borderline. Yeah. My lack of intimacy and vulnerability was a sign that I mm-hmm. had some traits. But it was like, well, what is it really? Is it borderline personality disorder? Or is it post-traumatic stress disorder? They can look so similar. Also, it's like you're also getting off drugs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I remember that like should just be I remember, a diagnosis in of itself. I remember my therapist was like, you know, this is months being in a treatment center, eight hours a day, right? And I remember like she brought me in and she's like, you know, Brian, we've been looking at your behavior and you don't socialize with the other kids. You choose to sit alone every single day. You can either like play Monopoly with the other kids and you sit alone every single day. We think you might have manic depression. And I was like, no shit, bitch. <laughs> like, Wait, I thought you were going to say, they're going to say, we think you're on the spectrum. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was like, I want to kill myself. You know, yeah. like, I fucked up my whole life. I'm in a fucking one classroom treatment center. Fucking everyone here like fucking is schizophrenic and like licks the table and like sniffs well, glue. That being said, adolescents that make it to treatment. Adolescence is crazy. Well, and a majority of them that make it to treatment are probably wrong doors. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. For you to blow up your life that much by the time you're 17, mm-hmm. there's probably other issues. And that's not 100%. You know, like if I look in, a f- in files of like 30-year-olds mm-hmm. who come in with alcoholic, you know, opioid, whatever disorders, you think of that per- only a percentage of them have a diagnosis that was primary prior to their use. Prior to 17 right. or as kids. Yeah. When you go into adolescent treatment, mm-hmm. for them to be in treatment, to meet criteria, mm-hmm. most of them had an underlying issue mm-hmm. prior to the drug use that was first. And it doesn't matter. It needs to be treated equally. And I'm just saying this, like we used to call adolescent drug treatment wrong door, wrong door. Because sometimes psychosis is coming wow. to the front. They were just playing the odds with you. Yeah, it wasn't sure. necessarily that your well, symptoms well, were I, that much different. They were playing the odds that chances of you being not diagnosed with something significant well, was probably. I, I know that when they would look at my, my drug use, it would confuse them because they would be like, well, it seems like he comes from a good family. His parents are here every day. <laughs> right. Like whenever his parents need to show up, they show up here. His dad might be a little like abrasive, but he's also pissed off that his kid's here. Yeah. He's really smart and intelligent and he's been smoking crack for four years. I think they thought I was lying and was like, is this kid just making stuff up or... Which is pretty which, common. Which does of, happen a lot, of, of you know. Someone who's bipolar. But then they would meet. Up. Then they would meet my parents, and be like, "Well, no, the parents have all like verified it." And I think now that I'm an adult, when I think back of it, it makes me like sad because it's like you don't meet too many kids that are like that far gone at Mm-mm. that an early age, and it's like, what must have happened to like make this person go so off the deep end and like not give a fuck. Yeah, I don't know because I, I, I mean, I. But probably, that's where the empathy comes yeah. from with like all these crazy psychopaths. I think I was probably could have gone to treatment when I was sixteen or seventeen, mm-hmm. and then I kind of pulled myself up by my bootstraps for a little while, mm-hmm. and then when I hit about twenty five or twenty six, I could not get it back together. Yeah. I couldn't bring it back in. You know, I had some bouts of recovery, but it wasn't like recovery going to meetings. I just like white knuckled like, it. Yeah, and I would relapse. You know. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I don't know if you can call it a relapse if there was no real commitment to stay sober. But for the, but there was periods of like, hey, I'm yeah. getting my shit together. Yeah, like I went yeah. long periods of time where I got my shit together and was able to. And then mm-hmm. that last six months prior to getting sober, I could not get my shit together. But if you would have looked at me as an adolescent mm-hmm. and done like a, an ASI or a, or a biopsychosocial, a biopsychosocial or, or an ASAM on me, you'd have been like, oh, she needs treatment. Yeah. Um, not just for the addiction, but for the, I mean, I didn't read, I never realized like, I mean, I had, I knew I had like a fucked up childhood, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know that there was like an actual syndrome that happens Mm. from being in traumatic experiences after traumatic experiences that it like comes out sideways if you don't deal with it. I didn't, I just thought like you deal with it Mm -hmm. and you move on, right? Mm -hmm. Like nobody ever said, oh, you know, we should probably send her to some therapy. Like that was pretty fucked up. (laughs) Hmm, maybe we should see if they need help. And I, you know, it's funny, I was I diagnosed at like six or seven with ADHD. They try yeah. to skip, they try to hold me back a grade. Mm-hmm. And I still have problems with like not reading comprehension, but like I transpose words, numbers, things like that. Like my brain doesn't always like figure out things real quickly, mm-hmm. right? 
Grammarly works great for that. Yeah. You know, but I realized now when I was diagnosed and they started putting me on Ritalin when I was like, like I said, second, third grade, I probably needed a good therapist to work through the fact that my uncle was murdered. Yeah. And his body of him and his girlfriend were found in trash bags. You know, like that my parents took me across like four states in, you know, a year and that, you know, like all of this stuff yeah, that that's happened. Yeah, a huge big thing. My dad left. My mm -hmm. mom had a nervous breakdown. Well, there's no feeling of security and safety. None. So you have to create your own yeah. and usually we do that with like drugs or like yeah. lying or manipulating or some type of thing i just shut down as a kid yeah i just went into my own world and my brother probably went into his world whatever yeah. that world was so because we never got that opportunity for someone so like i don't think you can stop people from being an addict i don't mm -hmm. think that's like i don't have that like oh get your kid therapy it's gonna stop from being an addict. Yeah, but yeah. i do think that if you see something with your children you should take a certain action to help them work mm -hmm. through it and develop that emotional intelligence so that they don't there's worse things than being an addict there's wor way For worse sure. things that can happen. I mean, I think my brother would have been great. I mean, he had addiction issues. Mm -hmm. He would probably been better off if he was just a straight, full-blown addict than For what sure. he had. I'm grateful that that's the story that I ended up having, and mm -hmm. it wasn't worse or it could have been so much different. Yeah. I think one of the things that with kids that are super helpful is that if you listen to them and pay attention, my bonus dad, for whatever reason, because mm -hmm. it was not his, took a lot of extra effort with me probably because it wasn't his, mm -hmm. to create a special relationship with That's me. That's cool. And because of that special relationship, I always had someone in my corner. Like you talk about your dad. Like mm -hmm. you always, if you have someone in your corner. Yeah, that roots I, for you, that yeah. hears you out, yeah. that listens to you, that thinks you're important. Yep. I think that's the other thing for recovery is mm -hmm. who recovers and who doesn't. People who have people in their life that are rooting for them, mm -hmm. not, not from enabling or some crazy, but like faith. Yeah, I believe in you. Yeah, if they have faith in their loved one, mm -hmm. the chances of them getting sober are much higher. For sure. Hey, well, I appreciate you coming to the show. Yeah. I love you very much. Love it's you always too. good to see you. And I appreciate you driving all this way. You killed it. I'm excited to upload this and have people hear this. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833-999-1877 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.